You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The developing story of the WannaCry pandemic continues to unfold with speculation about attribution focusing on the Lazarus Group, why malware would have a kill switch, throwbacks to the worm wars, the risks of unpatched, superannuated, or pirated software, litigation exposure in the WannaCry affair, and cyber pearl harbors. Again, what might one actually look like? I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, May 16th, 2017. We continue to follow the developing story of the WannaCry ransomware pandemic. Enterprises of all kinds, worldwide, private, industrial, governmental, entered the week bracing for a renewed wave of WannaCry infections. The problem hasn't gone away, but attacks on the scale seen Friday and continuing until the now-famous kill switch was found and flipped simply haven't materialized. It would, of course, be foolish to think we've seen the end of WannaCry and those behind it, but for now at least, the world seems to be in the recovery and remediation phase of the incident. So why did WannaCry have a kill switch in the first place? Researchers at security firm Silence are looking into the ransomware, and they offer a preliminary observation that kill switches are holdovers from the worm wars of the early 2000s. That's when owners wanted to be able to dismantle their malware once it had met their goals. The objective would be to keep the malicious code better targeted to, as Silence puts it, keep it from going wild once it gets out. The kill switch would appear to be ambivalent, however, since it's easy to change. Silence told us in an email, quote, Attackers can either hijack the kill switches by mutating the code to meet their needs, or remove the kill switch altogether. If the kill switch is hijacked, malicious actors can alter the code, so Bitcoin instructions go to their pay points. If the kill switch is removed altogether, the downside is that they, the initial users, lose control over the worm when it goes out into the wild. In this case, the kill switch appears to have been carelessly exposed. One might expect better of criminal or covert tradecraft. It's worth noting that Checkpoint says it's found a less virulent successor version, and Bitdefender thinks last week's attacks are the first of many more to come. Some experts think the WannaCry ransomware campaign has the look of a targeted attack gone wrong. It looks far more indiscriminate in its infection rate, which amounts to a pandemic, than even the best-prepared criminal gang could handle. And the Bitcoin wallets established as repositories for ransom payments don't seem equal to the task either. There's no clear attribution yet, 
but several researchers from Google and elsewhere believe they've discerned a similarity between WannaCry's code and some similar cryptors thought to have been used by the Lazarus Group in 2015. The Lazarus Group, of course, is generally connected to North Korea's government and has been blamed for dark soul attacks against South Korea, the Bangladesh Bank fraudulent fund transfer caper, and the wiper attack against Sony Pictures in November 2014. The plaintiff's bar is expected to be paying close attention to negligent patching in enterprises that suffered from WannaCry, but Microsoft is not generally thought to have much exposure. There's a growing sense among affected third parties, like patients in the UK's National Health Service, that the organizations victimized by the attack should have taken better measures to protect themselves, particularly since WannaCry was spread by exploiting a known and patched vulnerability that persisted for the most part in systems that were beyond their end of life. Observers expect litigation to follow, and they doubt that Microsoft will be the plaintiff's target. Microsoft points out that the affected organizations were running either unpatched or unsupported software, and some legal commentators agree that they're arguably negligent to do so. Given that it appears personal data weren't exposed in the campaign, it seems likely that lawsuits, if any, would come from people directly injured by the suspension of services, the ransomware induced in some organizations. In other news, the University of Texas at Austin Center for Identity recently published their 2017 Identity Theft Assessment and Prediction Report. Paige Schaefer is president and COO of Identity and Cyber Protection Services for Generali Global Assistance. She joins us to discuss the report. Approximately 50% of identity theft incidents that happened between 2006 and 2016, so really, you know, the last 10 years, half are, are low-tech. Criminals exploiting non-digital vulnerabilities, empty prescription bottles, sensitive paper documents, uh, really those, those vulnerabilities caused by human error. Another interesting factor is that, you know, we hear about these these huge breaches such as Target and some of the others across the country that really give you kind of this vast national uh, view, but it turns out that really 99% of the cases are really localized. They, they were confined to a local geographic area, smaller businesses, or certain uh, victim profiles. The other thing that we, we can't forget and should take to heart that many folks that are victimized occur from insider threat. Roughly 34% of the cases that they study uh, came from insiders. So employees of companies or family members of individuals had a role in one-third of these, these cases. When you look at these numbers, when you look at the report, what are some of the key takeaways in terms of what people can do to better protect themselves? Well, if you think about the low-tech initiative, so rip up or shred your information, don't throw it in the garbage. Certainly where medical information is concerned, there are many aspects of PII that's captured. The top five pieces of PII that are compromised are name, certainly, social security number, address, date of birth, and of course, credit card number. And name and social security number ranked the highest, credit card about 7%. Uh, so if you think about you know, your information that's potentially out there, name and address and date of birth, that's on a lot of information. So best to shred. If you think about, you know, we're just past tax season, but get your W-2s from your office. Don't have them mail it to you. Uh, a lot of times I go to the doctor and sometimes they'll ask for my social and I just don't give it to them so that it's not printed out on any information. And so if you're coming away with forms, just make 
take good care on how you get rid of those things. Criminals, they capture your information, just your basic information, and put it together. Uh, They can get it in a really low-tech way. Many times credit cards, though, are also procured in, in the dark web, on chat rooms, and what have you. And so it's best to be vigilant about your information and where you keep it, where you put it, and how you get rid of it. But also, you know, from a proactive standpoint, you want to have some service that's that's monitoring your information so that if somebody does get a hold of it, somebody walking through a, a Starbucks with a card reader and collects a bunch of credit card information, that you're going to get some alerts, whether it's credit or alerts on the dark web, that your information is showing up in a nefarious place. So you've got a bit of proactive protection there. That's Paige Schaefer from Generali Global Assistance. The report is the 2017 Identity Theft Assessment and Prediction Report, published by the University of Texas at Austin Center for Identity. Finally, returning once again to the fallout from WannaCry, while U.S. targets were hit by WannaCry, they suffered relatively lightly, we stress relatively, compared to targets in Russia, China, India, and Britain. Various senior security experts in the U.S. have revived talk of a cyber Pearl Harbor. We'd like to conclude by taking that metaphor seriously. Consider the Pearl Harbor attack. It involved not strategic surprise, the U.S. expected Japan to go to war, nor operational surprise. The Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor was warned, as was the Army's Hawaiian garrison and General MacArthur's command in the Philippines. What it did involve was tactical surprise. The U.S. was caught napping on Battleship Row and Wheeler Field. So, would a cyber Pearl Harbor involve tactical surprise? Pearl Harbor also seemed to be a failure of middle management. Junior enlisted radar operators saw and reported inbound aircraft, but were told by their higher-ups not to worry. And the USS Ward depth sank a midget sub entering Pearl Harbor and reported the sinking. The highest Navy and Army commanders in the islands knew they were under a war warning and thought they'd directed appropriate precautions and alerts. So perhaps a cyber Pearl Harbor would be one suffered when someone between the CISO and the SOC failed to get the word? And finally, of course, 2,403 people died in the attack, and a further 1,143 were wounded. Would a cyber attack need to work that kind of kinetic effect before it qualified as a Pearl Harbor? Seriously, these questions are worth thinking about. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire.
And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And joining me once again is David DeFore. He's the Senior Director of Engineering and Cybersecurity at WebRoot. Uh, David, welcome back. You know, every now and then uh, we think it's good here to uh, to reach back and uh, talk about some of the basics. And uh, so we're asking you today to uh, give us an overview of exploits and scripts. All right, great. Well, it's, it's, it's nice to be back, David. Um, thank you for having me. Um, you know, there's always a lot of talk about ransomware and malware um, and, and the things that those... Uh, can do to you. And, and sometimes we forget to talk about the, the delivery mechanisms of how that stuff gets on your system or infects your, your mobile device. Two very common delivery mechanisms are exploits and scripts. Scripts are probably the, the more simple uh, example of the two. And, and those typically come in the form of email attachments. You know, you used to have script exploits uh, in, embedded in web pages and, and things of that nature, but the browser manufacturers have done a pretty good job of blocking malicious scripts from being able to execute um, in your browser. So now we see scripts, the two most common um, scripting languages out there, VBScript and JavaScript. We're seeing those come into uh, organizations or, or into your home through email attachments where it might say resume.script or, or something like that. And what they're trying to do is to entice you to open this script that will then execute and pull down that malware or that ransomware and install it on your machine. The other more sophisticated and, and you know, in my position, the one I really enjoy looking at because it's, it's, it's pretty sexy, um, are exploits. And, and typically, you see exploits on web pages through third-party apps where someone has gone out and they figured out how to take advantage of the operating system, the browser, or some, some third-party plug-in to a browser such that if you navigate to a web page, this exploit will run behind the scenes. You won't know it ran, and it'll, it'll do a drive-by where it'll actually pull down some malicious code without your knowledge and, and then install that code, and, and you're in trouble. And, and so exploits, they're more expensive, they're much harder to, to find, and, and once they're known about, they get plugged very quickly. Uh, but the, the scary thing is you don't know they happened until you're infected. All right, it's good to review the basics. David DeFore, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. 
Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 